Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 16, War of the Currents, Part 4, The Executioner's Current, 1889 to 1890. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. The emphasis the last few episodes has been on the and times part of that title, admittedly, But don't forget, though Tesla wasn't always on the front lines of the War of the Currents, it was definitely his AC motor and plans for future AC research and invention that was at stake in Westinghouse's struggles with Edison. And as I mentioned last time, it was in the development of the electric chair that AC faced perhaps its most existential threat. So we'll wrap up this phase of the War of the Currents this week, and next time, go see whether we can spring Tesla from that monastery in Croatia. Surely he's rested up by now. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. But before we begin, I want to give a shout-out to all those people who took a minute to like or leave a rating on our Facebook page since the last episode. Misi Bilik, Mohamed Ober Kayum, Arthur Rodriguez, Mim Bizik, and Fred Mann who was also kind enough to leave a five-star review, saying in part, Great pod, very interesting subject and excellent delivery. Extremely happy to support a well-done pod. Thanks so much, Fred. If you'd like to leave a rating and review and get a shout-out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there, as it helps the discoverability of the show and means that people will be able to find it more easily when searching about Tesla. Likewise, You can also join the Tesla The Life and Times podcast Facebook page and leave a rating and review there. Now, last time, we heard all about the process that New York State went through, first deciding to carry out executions using electricity, and then to actually implement the experimental process. They relied on Harold Brown's expertise, secretly aided by Edison and Charles Coffin of the Thompson-Houston Company, to determine and then supply the kind of equipment needed to carry out the execution, and, more importantly, to decide on the type of current and the, quote, necessary strength of current to produce death with certainty in all cases and under all circumstances. Once the execution law came into effect, Brown and Edison didn't have to wait long for the first candidate for the chair to show himself. And once the sentence was handed down, they would finally get to see the gruesome fruits of their efforts to link alternating current to the death penalty. And so, as before, as we begin this week, I want to offer a caution to you, the listener. This is where the War of the Currents enters its most ghoulish and macabre phase where, in order to gain commercial advantage over a rival, combatants in the War of the Currents were willing to play with a man's life. Again, I'm going to try and downplay the more gruesome and sensational aspects, but, spoiler alert, this week's episode does end with the botched execution of the first person ever to be put to death by deliberate electrocution. Viewer discretion is very much advised. On the morning of March 29, 1889, 
two months after the death by electricity law came into effect in New York State, William Kemmler, an illiterate alcoholic vegetable peddler from Buffalo, drunkenly accused his common-law wife, Tilly Ziegler, of planning to leave him. During the argument that ensued, Kemmler picked up a hatchet and killed Ziegler. He then immediately walked to his neighbor's house and confessed. I killed her, Kemmler said. I had to do it. I meant to. I killed her and I'll take the rope for it. I want the rope. The sooner the better. The rope, however, was not to be his fate. Six weeks after the killing, in a pretty open and shut case, a jury convicted Kemmler of first-degree murder. Three days later, in the midst of a thunder and lightning storm, no less, a coincidence that the newspapers made much fuss about, the judge sentenced Kemmler to die, and since he was the first criminal sentenced to death in New York State in 1889, Kemmler would also be the first to die in the electric chair. Now, the facts of the case and Kemmler's guilt are not in dispute. People heard the argument and saw the aftermath, including Kemmler drenched in his wife's blood, and they had his own full, immediate, and spontaneous confession. So, this isn't an instance where there's been some miscarriage of justice, and but for some key piece of evidence, a man has been wrongly convicted of a crime he didn't commit. It was a brutal crime, and he was guilty without question. But, I'll leave it to you to decide whether even a man as clearly guilty as Kemmler deserved what happened to him on the morning of his execution. With Kemmler's conviction, the New York Times spilled a lot of ink discussing what the new death-by-electricity form of execution ought to be called. Jerry side was suggested, after death penalty commissioner head Elbridge Jerry, as was browned for our old friend Harold P., Executives at the Edison Company gloatingly proposed that, quote, as Westinghouse's dynamo is going to be used for the purpose of executing criminals, why not give him the benefit of this fact in the minds of the public, and speak hereafter of a criminal as being Westinghouse, or, to use it as a noun, as having been condemned to the Westinghouse, in the same way that Dr. Guillotine's name was forever immortalized in France. The Edison team was, quote, savoring this most monstrous and momentous of victories in the ongoing War of the Currents. The New York Times hated the word that was eventually adopted, electrocution, describing it as being favored by, quote, pretentious ignoramuses. Before Kemmler could be executed, however, came the inevitable appeal. And at this point, if he hadn't been already, Kemmler became a pawn in the War of the Currents over his own execution. Because, seemingly from nowhere, William Bork Cochran, a prominent, politically connected former New York congressman and expensive lawyer, appeared and volunteered to make the appeal. Cochran, 35, was already a celebrated orator of the Gilded Age who would eventually serve another ten-year term in Congress. In his legal practice, he was mostly a highly paid corporate lawyer who counted railroads, utilities, and steamship lines as clients as well as Joseph Pulitzer, owner of the influential New York World newspaper. You know, the guy who the award is named after? An Irish immigrant himself, however, Cochran always remained a friend of the little guy, and his own ardent opposition to capital punishment led him to represent a number of murderers during his illustrious legal career. In this instance, Cochran assured reporters he had taken the Kemmler appeal in the interests of humanity. But, 
he never claimed that he was also doing so pro bono. It was widely believed, though never proven, that Westinghouse quietly handled Cochrane's fee behind the scenes, a fee estimated to be as much as $100,000, or nearly $2.5 million, in today's money. Westinghouse, of course, wanted to ensure that neither his company's equipment nor AC power generally had anything to do with killing a man on behalf of the state. If he couldn't prevent Westinghouse AC generators from being used, remember last time that Brown and Coffin had conspired to secure some used Westinghouse generators to power the electric chair, then Westinghouse would do the next best thing and fight to get the electrocution law repealed entirely. To that end, Cochrane's appeal was based on arguing that death by electricity violated the U.S. Constitution's Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Cochrane based this assertion on the idea that electricity was too unpredictable to be a reliable or humane means of execution. The deadly effects of electricity were poorly understood, and there was great variation in how much voltage could be safely taken into the human body. Therefore, it had to be considered cruel and unusual punishment by default because there was no telling what might happen once the switch was thrown. Throughout the two months of testimony for the appeal, Cochrane focused relentlessly on two fundamental questions. Did the various electrical experts actually understand all aspects of electricity at issue? And how could anyone guarantee instant and painless death to William Kemmler when there were so many instances of people subjected to huge amounts of electricity which caused them terrible pain and injury, but didn't kill them. On the first day of hearings, Monday, July 9th, the first witness called was, fittingly enough, Harold Brown. Remember, Brown billed himself an electrical engineer. Cochrane's first line of attack was to demonstrate that Brown was neither well-trained nor well-regarded in the electrical field. He was not a member of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, and he had only a high school education. Brown countered that his 13 years working for Western Electric and Brush Electric were equivalent experience to a degree. My particular business at present, Brown testified, is designing apparatus for people who require it, or standing as an expert between the purchaser of electric apparatus and the company supplying them, or as an expert in advising in matters in which electricity is used. He insisted that, quote, I, at present, am entirely independent of any company. He was made to concede that the scientific method of his experiments was sloppy, that some animals in his experiments had received multiple shocks before succumbing, and even that some survived the whole ordeal. Remember that one dog who got seven courses of shocks before an Edison man who was assisting Brown adopted him out of pity? Cochrane noted Brown's strong ties to Edison and suggested that Brown's experiments were meant to shore up the inventor's commercial interests. Brown claimed Edison was merely, quote, a personal acquaintance, and insisted his experiments were motivated by nothing other than his regard for public safety. Astonishingly, Brown testified that he was only vaguely aware of a conflict between Edison and Westinghouse. Question. There is a contest between the Westinghouse Electric Light Company and the Edison Electric Light Company as to the use of these incandescent burners? Brown. I understand so. Question. And there is considerable feeling between the two corporations? Brown. Of that I cannot say. Question. 
Don't you know anything about it at all? Brown. Not from actual knowledge. At this point, Cochrane produced one of Brown's own pamphlets, The Comparative Danger to Life of the Alternating and Continuous Electrical Currents, to refresh Brown's memory. The back of the pamphlet featured Brown's challenge to George Westinghouse to fight a public electric duel. Throughout his two-day testimony, Brown remained adamant that he was essentially disinterested in the AC versus DC question, and well-versed enough in the ways of electricity to guarantee Kemmler a quick, painless death. Cochrane then called several witnesses who had themselves received massive shocks of electricity, yet had walked away essentially unharmed. Dr. Landon Carter Gray, a New York physician and medical expert, testified that the effect of electricity on the human body was too unpredictable for the death chair to be a reliable means of capital punishment. Men have been killed by electricity, it is true, he testified, both in the artificial form and by lightning, but other men have been struck by thunderbolts or come in contact with large artificial currents without injury. To attempt to put a person to death with our present knowledge of the fatal effects of electricity might lead to horrible scenes and even great fraud. If the current were not powerful enough, or if the resistance of the criminal was very great, he might merely be tortured and racked and suffer the agonies of death without its relief. Dr. Gray's testimony was prophetic, as we will see in a moment. The next witness called was Daniel Gibbons, one of the commissioners from the New York City Board of Electrical Control, who had watched Brown's dog killings, and who, surely to Cochrane's delight, turned out to be skeptical of the possibilities of a quick and certain electrical death for Kemmler. He grimaced just remembering the dog trials. It was one of the most frightful scenes I have ever witnessed. The dogs writhed and squirmed and gave vent to their agonies in howls and piteous wails. As for electricity itself, Gibbons said it was unpredictable in its effects on different animals and people, quote, just as the effects of whiskey vary when used by different men. Alexander McCady testified next. McCady was a Harvard graduate who had worked at the U.S. Signal Service Laboratory in Washington, D.C., studying the effects of lightning. He said that the, quote, deadly effect of electricity would depend upon the subject's resistance and upon the route through the body. It might only paralyze one half of his body and leave the other half unharmed. It might kill him, and if it didn't kill him instantly, it might carbonize him, burn him up. Yes, he said when asked, I think it would char his flesh. Cochrane even introduced into evidence a dog named Dash, who had been electrocuted by a dangling Western Union wire, was believed dead, and then revived many hours later. Dash was living proof, said Cochrane, that a large mammal could be knocked out by an electrocution, mistaken for dead, and then revive. Was there a possibility this could happen to Kemmler? Cochrane asked the court. If he didn't die the first time, would the state try again? Surely putting a man to death twice would be considered cruel and unusual, wouldn't it? On July 23rd, Edison was deposed, his first public statement weighing in on the death by electricity question. Question. In your judgment, can artificial electric current be generated and applied in such a way to produce death in human beings in every case? Edison. Yes. Question. Instantly? Edison. Yes. At this point, Edison explained his design for the chair. 
that the convicted should have his hands placed in jars of water diluted with caustic potash and be connected to electrodes such that the current crossed his heart and his brainstem. Question. How much of a current do you think it would take to burn a man? Edison. Several thousand horsepower. You'd probably burn him up. Question. Have a nice little bonfire with him, would you? Edison. Oh no, just carbonize him. Question. How long do you think it would take to burn a man? Edison. His temperature would rise three or four degrees above the normal, and after a while he'd be mummified. Question. Mummified? How? Edison. The heat would evaporate all the fluids in his body and leave him mummyized. Question. This is your belief, not from knowledge? Edison. From belief. I never killed anybody. Cochrane also inquired about Edison's relationship with Harold Brown. Had Edison ever given him a letter of recommendation? No, said Edison, which was technically true, though Edison had given Brown verbal recommendations. Dealings with Brown, said Edison, were strictly limited to Brown's use of Edison's West Orange Laboratory, a privilege which Edison extended to numerous other engineers and scientists. Valiant though Cochrane's questioning was, Edison's usual cocky manner and air of certainty carried the day. Historians Terry S. Reynolds and Theodore Bernstein argue, quote, Edison's reputation probably overrode Cochrane's exposure of Edison's ignorance of the effects of electricity on living organisms. Certainly, some newspapers regarded his testimony as definitive. The Albany Journal, for example, noted, quote, The Kemmler case at last has an expert that knows something concerning electricity. Mr. Edison is probably the best informed man in America, if not the world, regarding electric currents and their destructive powers. There was simply no one that Cochrane could produce for his side that had the same fame or stature as Edison, or someone who the public and the judge was likely to believe as readily as they did Edison. We might wonder why Tesla wasn't called as an expert witness, but remember at this point Tesla hadn't yet achieved a level of fame or accolade that he would a few short years from this point. His main accomplishment to this point would be selling some patents to Westinghouse. With the testimony complete, the material was turned over to the judge for deliberation, and all sides waited several months for the decision. In the meantime, however, in late August 1889, in its Sunday edition, the New York Sun newspaper ran an expose on Harold Brown titled, For Shame, Brown, with a subheading reading, Paid by one electric company to injure another. Someone had broken into Harold Brown's Wall Street office and stolen 45 letters from his locked roll-top desk. I like to think that this was an act of industrial espionage arranged by Westinghouse. It's the romantic in me. This cache of purloined correspondence showed that for some time, Brown had indeed been advised, aided, abetted, and paid by the Edison Company and Thompson-Houston, both explicit rivals of Westinghouse. As the Sun wrote, quote, Brown is known not to be a wealthy man, and that he could afford to devote all his time thus purely for the benefit of the human race at large, with little thought of self, has been a mystery to those acquainted with him. Despite this, little changed. Brown complained to the district attorney, requested an investigation, and offered a $500 reward for information about the thief. Brown always maintained, even under oath, that Edison never hired him. I am exposing the Westinghouse system, he claimed, as any right-minded man would expose the grocer who sells poison where he pretends to sell sugar. 
On October 9, 1889, the court ruled and denied Kemmler's appeal, clearing the way for execution by electricity. A further appeal to the Supreme Court of New York was rejected in early 1890, with the court seeing nothing cruel or unusual in death by electricity. Cruel punishments, said the court's opinion, included such deaths as, quote, burning at the stake, breaking on the wheel, being fired out of a cannon, hanging in chains to die of starvation, or disemboweling and crucifixion, which is, wow, a really high bar for cruel and unusual. Finally, the U.S. Supreme Court, too, denied Kemmler's appeal on May 23, 1890. The court ruled that the question of cruelty had been thoroughly addressed by the New York State Death Commission when it chose electricity over the hangman's rope. William Kemmler would be the first human being executed with electricity. After the rejection of his final appeal, the prison issued a statement said to be from Kemmler. I am ready to die by electricity, it read. I am guilty and I must be punished. I am ready to die. I am glad I am not going to be hung. I think it is much better to die by electricity than it is to be hung. It will not give me any pain. I am glad Mr. Durston is going to turn the switch. He is firm and strong. If a weak man did it, I might be afraid. My faith is too firm for me to weaken. They say I am not converted. I don't care what they think. I know what I've got. I am happy to die. I've never been so happy in my life as I have been here. The execution was scheduled for some time between August 3rd and August 6th, 1890, the precise time kept secret until hours before the sentence was to be carried out. In the interim, various periodicals began expressing concern with the, quote, electrical executioners. For example, the following was published in a number of editorial pages. It is hard to conceive of a more horrible experiment than that which will be made on Kemmler. In a secret place, he will be compelled to go through a process of mental and moral, if not also bodily torture, and nobody can tell how long it will last. Twenty-five witnesses to the state's first official electrocution gathered at Auburn Prison shortly after 6 a.m. on the morning of August 6, 1890. Present were Dr. Alfred P. Southwick, the Buffalo dentist and chief instigator of the electrical death penalty, the warden, Charles Durston, as well as prominent lawyers, physicians, and several reporters. Harold Brown, however, was not amongst them. His reputation, such as it was, had diminished since the expose a year earlier in the sun. When his original contract as the state's expert on electrical execution had expired on May 1, 1890, Brown did nothing to extend it, nor was an offer made. So, this is Brown's last appearance in our story, for at this point, he plays no more role in the War of the Currents, and essentially disappears from history. And like that, he's gone. The chair, in its final form, was far less dental chair-like, and described instead as malevolent and brutish-looking in appearance. An oversized oak armchair with wide, flat arms, a crude footrest, and a perforated wooden seat. There were numerous thick leather restraint straps, and a heavy leather mask that enveloped and covered the criminal's face, pressing it back into a neck brace that would have a saturated sponge. Warden Charles Durston had personally expressed distaste at his role as electrocution overseer, 
but it was his duty to read Kemmler the death warrant. All right, said Kemmler, I'm ready. He was freshly attired in new dark gray slack trousers, vest and jacket, suspenders, a white shirt, and a black and white checked bow tie. Kemmler ate breakfast in his cell with two ministers who had been his companions through the appeals process. After they said a final prayer, the guard cut a slit down the seat of Kemmler's pants so the electric chair's electrodes would make ideal contact. For the same reason, he also shaved the top of Kemmler's head. They say I'm afraid to die, Kemmler said to the guard, but they will find that I ain't. I want you to stay right by me, Joe, and see me through this thing, and I will promise you that I won't make any trouble. They arrived at the electrocution chamber at 6.32 a.m. For an unknown reason, the previous day, Durston had moved the heavy wooden electric chair from its original site in an upstairs room to an isolated basement room. The dynamo was a thousand feet away in another part of the prison, and all communication with its operators would be conducted via bells. The death chamber was incongruously bright, with motes of dust dancing through broad bars of morning sunlight that flooded from two windows high above the rough-planked wood floor. The twenty-five official witnesses sat in uneasy silence. Gentlemen, said Durston, his voice trembling, this is William Kemmler. I have warned him that he has got to die, and if he has anything to say, he will say it. Kemmler bowed to the witnesses. Gentlemen, I wish you all good luck. I believe I am going to a good place, and I am ready to go. I want only to say that a great deal has been said about me that is untrue. I am bad enough. It is cruel to make me out worse. He bowed again, and actually made to sit down in one of the regular chairs, before realizing his mistake, and sitting instead in the electric chair. As the warden began attaching the electrodes and wet sponges, Kemmler said, Now take your time and do it all right, warden. There's no rush. I don't want to take any chances on this thing, you know. When all was said and done, Kemmler was mostly obscured by the heavy leather mask headpiece, thick leather straps, and a tangle of wires. Two physicians came forward to inspect the straps. One said, God bless you, Kemmler, you have done well. Many of the witnesses already had tears in their eyes. Just then, the district attorney of Buffalo rose from his chair, looking quite green. Excusing himself, he walked unsteadily out into the hallway. He would later be discovered there, where he had fainted. Back in the death chamber, the warden conferred briefly with the two physicians, before moving to the adjacent room where he would signal the electricians at the dynamo. Tense silence filled the space. Goodbye, William, said Durston, and there was heard a low click. The switch was thrown in the far-off dynamo room. Then, reported the New York Times, Kemmler's body jolted upright and strained terrifyingly against the straps. He became, quote, as rigid as though cast in bronze, save for the index finger of the right hand, which closed up so tightly that the nail pierced the flesh and blood trickled out onto the arm of the chair. When Kemmler's face turned gray, the prison physician announced, He is dead, leading the warden to signal for the switch to be turned off. Seventeen seconds had passed. It was now 6.43 a.m. The assembled witnesses collectively exhaled. Durston detached the electrode from Kemmler's scalp. The doctors present gathered around Kemmler to inspect just what the current had done to him. Dr. Southwick, 
The Buffalo dentist who had started the movement to use electricity as a humane method of execution was delighted. There, he said to reporters, there is the culmination of ten years' work and study. We live in a higher civilization from this day. But suddenly, they realized something was terribly wrong. Blood continued to flow from Kemmler's small finger wound. That meant that his heart still had to be beating. The Times records that, quote, To the horror of all present, the chest began to heave, foam issued from the mouth, and the man gave every evidence of reviving. Great God, yelled one of the physicians. He is alive. Turn on the current, cried another. See, he breathes, gasped a third. For God's sake, kill him and have it over, someone screamed. The Associated Press reporter fainted and was carried to a bench. Durston fumbled to reattach the scalp electrode. The current was turned on, and Kemmler again went rigid. His hair and skin were being visibly burned. A blue flame erupted behind his neck and his clothes caught fire, but one of the doctors quickly extinguished them. The stench, reported the Times, was unbearable. After several minutes, no one knew exactly how long the second jolt of current was applied, Witnesses with watches were too horrified to consult them. The current was finally turned off. As purple spots mottled Kemmler's hands, arms, and necks, the doctors again declared him dead. The witnesses signed the death warrant and then left the death chamber in silence. Shaken, several nauseated, the Erie County Sheriff openly weeping. Three hours later, when the doctors had sufficiently recovered to perform an autopsy, they found that rigor mortis had stiffened Kemmler into a permanent sitting position. Examination of the body showed burn marks on the flesh wherever the electrodes and buckles had touched the body. Kemmler's remains were taken and buried at night in the prison graveyard, covered in quicklime to dissolve all traces. Southwick excused the botch electrocution as inevitable on a first try, Otherwise, he was quite pleased with himself. I tell you, this is a grand thing, and is destined to become the system of legal death throughout the world. The next day, New York's many newspapers devoted page after page to the world's first official electrical execution, including every ghastly detail. The New York Times front page headline charged, Far worse than hanging, Kemmler's death proves an awful spectacle. The New York Daily Tribune subhead read, Errors and misunderstandings made the execution painful to the witnesses. One eyewitness, a doctor, told the New York Times, quote, I would rather see ten hangings than one such execution as this. Thomas Edison was quoted as saying, I have merely glanced over an account of Kemmler's death and it was not pleasant reading. He blamed the doctors present for misplacing electrodes. They should have been attached to the palm of Kemmler's hands, he said. Cochran, Kemmler's lawyer, said, It is a sort of ghastly triumph for me. The experts against me on the trial figured it all out such that such a shocking thing was impossible, and yet it has just happened. After Kemmler's awful punishment, no other state will adopt the electrical execution law. As for George Westinghouse, he said, I do not care to talk about it at all. It has been a brutal affair. They could have done it better with an axe. Then, Perhaps sensing he'd not defended alternating current enough, Westinghouse added, The public will lay the blame where it belongs, and it will not be on us. I regard the manner of the killing as a complete vindication of all our claims. Almost forty years later, Nikola Tesla still aboard the electric chair, calling it, quote, 
an apparatus monstrously unsuitable, for the poor wretches are not dispatched in a merciful manner, but literally roasted alive. An individual under such conditions, while wholly bereft of the consciousness of the lapse of time, retains a keen sense of pain, and a minute of agony is equivalent to that through all eternity. By the time New York's second electrocution took place the following spring, the electric chair sported a more powerful Westinghouse dynamo and thicker wires. The electrodes were placed on the condemned man's calf rather than spine, so the current would pass through the heart, and the dynamo was kept running continuously. The next several executions went comparatively smoothly, and in a surprisingly short time, the electric chair came to be considered an acceptable and even humane means of carrying out death sentences. Edison's home state of Ohio introduced electrocution in 1896, followed by Massachusetts in 1898, and Edison's adopted state of New Jersey in 1906. Soon, more than 20 states were using electric chairs. New York State would go on to use the electric chair for 72 years, eventually sending 695 people to their deaths. The executioners settled on a formula for the condemned. 2,000 to 2,200 volts of alternating current at 7 to 12 amps for about 20 seconds, lowered and reapplied at various intervals until death. But prison officials learned what Harold Brown already had discovered, that electricity was very unpredictable, to say nothing of the people charged with administering it. In 1946, convicted murderer Willie Francis was severely shocked but not killed by the Louisiana electric chair. It turned out that a drunk guard had improperly wired the chair. After an unsuccessful appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, Francis was returned to the chair a second time and finally executed. And there are other such botched examples all the way into the 1990s. But like hanging before it, public opinion began to sour on the electric chair starting in the 1970s after a series of high-profile botched electrocutions in which the condemned clearly suffered grotesquely before finally dying. In 1982, Texas abandoned the electric chair in favor of lethal injection, and many states soon followed suit. Currently, only eight places on the planet still use electricity to kill criminals, all in the United States. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Nebraska, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. In Nebraska, electrocution remains the only method of execution. Inmates in the other states are given a choice between the electric chair and lethal injection. So far, all but one inmate given the choice have opted for lethal injection. Next time, having given Tesla more than enough time to recuperate, we'll pull him out of that monastery and get him back where he belongs, in a lab. After his success with the AC motor, Tesla would turn to experiments with high voltages. But when Westinghouse comes crawling to Tesla pleading poverty, we'll watch helplessly as Tesla unwittingly makes perhaps the single greatest blunder of his entire career. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend, share a link on your social media. Please take a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to the show, and leave us a rating and review. As mentioned at the top of the show, as reviews come in, I'll do a shout-out as a thank you on the next episode. 
Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page. And you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at katowich.com or on Twitter with the handle at Our Man Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.